Hey y'all, this is GD. A quick note here. You might remember that in the last episode of the Post Bougie podcast, we talked to Greg Howard of Deadspin. Greg had written a series of articles on Jason Whitlock and his troubled tenure at an ESPN site called The Undefeated. So those articles were the source of some contention between the two of them, to put it really mildly. And after that episode aired, Jason Whitlock actually reached out to Joel Anderson, who was on the episode. Joel is a member of the Post Bougie family. He's a reporter at BuzzFeed. Anyway, Joel asked Whitlock if he wanted to come on the podcast to tell his side of the story, which, you know, is only fair, but Whitlock declined. So that's what it is in the interest of full disclosure. All right, here's this week's episode. This podcast contains explicit language. What's good, everybody? You're listening to the Post Bougie Podcast. I'm Gene Demby, but everybody just calls me GD. This year is the 50th anniversary of the Moynihan Report. If you're listening to this podcast, you probably know what the Moynihan Report is already, but here's a primer anyway. So the actual name of the Moynihan Report is the Negro Family, the case for national action. And in it, its namesake, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who was an official in the Johnson White House, linked the dire economic conditions of black Americans to a kind of moral decline among black folks which he wrote was especially evidence in the absence of black fathers. Even today, a lot of people still name check the report in conversations about dysfunctional black pathology and black culture, which is why it's still controversial all these decades later. This week, Taryn and I chop it up with Tressie McMillan Cotton. She's a sociologist at Virginia Commonwealth University, and she wrote a piece last month in The Atlantic called Race is Always the Issue. And I'm all like, yeah, it is. Anyway, in that essay, Tressie basically says she has no time for all those contemporary attempts to salvage Daniel Patrick Moynihan's image, and mostly because she says that report didn't do all that much to hurt his reputation in the first place because, you know, calling black people messed up has never really come with much cause for people in public life. But the larger point of her essay is how much the ideas in the Moynihan report echo so many of the ideas that shape the way we talk about, you know, public resources and who should have access to what. Like, say, good schools, which is one of our favorite topics here at Post Bougie. So our discussion about all this Moynihan stuff sort of morphed into a conversation about the very irritating idea of the good black man. Y'all know exactly what we're talking about. All right, all right, I'm done. Here's this week's episode. Well, the reason why Moynihan is part of the conversation right now is we're coming up on the 50-year anniversary, right, of, of what we tend to call the Moynihan Report. So people are revisiting it, and there's a sort of wave of, you know, let's restore his reputation. And I'm like, restore it from what? <laughs> uh, you know, there's, <laughs> by almost every objective measure, he won that conversation. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, that's the only thing that, that was withheld, was the idea of uh, the Black community thanking him for so <laughs> accurately describing our pathology. <laughs> but other than that, mm-hmm. the idea the idea that he was denied access or resources or esteem or status is really ridiculous and, I mean, demonstrably not true. It is entirely possible. I think, you know, sort of my larger point was it has been and continues to be entirely possible to be a successful public intellectual and say things that are morally repugnant. Mm-hmm. You can absolutely have a career doing that. You know, at the time, he was considered something of a racial progressive, right? I mean, like, he, because yes. he was one of the things you see throughout history is that a lot of people who did actually pretty, really damaging things to people of color broadly at the time were people who were like, or at least among their contemporaries, they weren't considered rebellious or, you know, regressive in their politics. Um, nope. And, you know, he worked for, you know, arguably the most progressive president. Thank yeah. you. Mm-hmm. Uh, the narrative, however, that he wanted his colleagues to pick up was one that could actually sound progressive at the time, which should give us a clue about what is generally the status quo, right? Mm -hmm. When 
when something can sound progressive when you, where you are effectively saying, listen, whatever happens to the women, let's make sure the men work, right? Mm. And, and no matter what happens, no matter what the kind of work is, let's just make sure that the, that the men have somewhere to go every day so that they develop some self-esteem as if this was like, this was, this was what he's saying. Right, right, right. That that could be progressive right. is not entirely off from our, our current political situation. Right. I mean, this is... Let's lock up, you know, a few thousand fewer people. I am a black man, grown-ass black man now, but I was a young black boy. And you get all that stuff growing up about sort of how you are broken, right? And shout out to Zachary Gong Gang, my former roommate. Um, but he works in the nonprofit space, um, specifically around issues affecting black boys and black men. And one of the conversations we would always have is the way that um, so much of the this work that's done around like black boys and black men in that space is about sort of social correction. It's not really about like resource allocation, right? It's about right. sort of um, we need to like build your esteem up, and we need to but we love self esteem. Yeah, and you can see it everywhere. Like even again, like from like well meaning people. Like if you, when you look at like there's a conversation about sort of black men abdicating their roles, these traditional yeah, roles, head of the household. heads of households and providers. And Monahan wrote that about fifty something years yeah. ago. But that thing still permeates the conversation. We want to oh, raise yeah. good, quote, good black men. I oh, wanna, you know. good black men trademark. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. With the okay. TM. I'm doing the air quotes. Trademark. Good black man. Black man. Y'all got on a suit. Your haircut is crispy. You go to church on Sunday. <laughs> you got a job. You ain't got no kids. You got a job. You yeah. take care. All your teeth. All yeah. your teeth. Yes. Good black man trademark. Yes. yes. <laughs> and, I, and it's funny because, like, the good black man is, is actually a very dangerous construction it is. in a lot of ways. For men and women. You know, good black men can do all of those things and um, be horrible life partners and be horrible parents, right? But can perform all of those things. And so they can be horrible for their families. Mm. But they can also, it can also be destructive of the men who are trying to perform it because they want to be something else. And mm. guess what? The idea that we would deny humanity to people based on the sins of white folks is ridiculous. Because that's really what we're trying to solve, right, through black men's self-esteem and brokenness. And so the idea that their humanity should be in some way um, constrained to make up for something that is not a problem they can fix. Mm -hmm. It's the ultimate American perversion. We love that. Let's fix white people's racism through black people. You say where the issue criminality science would tell you that civil unrest stems from the various different social processes than those which produce criminals, where the issue safety, public policy would protect black taxpayers from being indiscriminately murdered by the police. When when you make those statements, um, what are some of the responses that you get? And I want to know what your react, what you see the reactions are in the academy and in the good black man space when you counter that like you can't solve everything like with a suit and like a pep talk. Oh man, you know what's funny? Um, I probably get I get as much shit from black people as I do mm. from non-black people and from academics across the spectrum. Really, mm. I do. I think it's like any article of faith though, right? It's like, you know, one of my other lines of my work, I have some of the most depressing work known to mankind, right? So the other line of my work, I talk about for-profit colleges and really at the heart of mind, they explain to black people that not all education is necessarily a net positive, sure. right? Mm. And we have this deeply held conviction. I mean, we fought our entire, you know, a very significant part of our, our case for uh, civil liberties is fought through education. Right, that's right. We don't have a narrative of education maybe being negative, right? And you go, and they get, so I get that resistance from us surely as much as I get it from academics and the same sort of with this kind of argument. So my colleagues um, are actually really great about it. Um, 
this most recent piece. I rarely talk about it. Uh, when I do stuff, I sort of put it out and I, I walk away from it. But I have more engagement this time than I typically would. I think they were stunned that this is considered, I mean, we're sociologists, right? And I forget sometimes that I can say stuff like about, oh, of course, there's racism, right? Or of course, I can say like white racism mm-hmm. at work and I, nobody calls I was going to blink, right, yeah. Right, right. And I forget sometimes that the rest of the world, like when you've been out of the regular workforce for a minute, you forget <laughs> you can't like just drop that at the call center and walk away. <laughs> right. So I get that I've got a little bit of <laughs> a different headspace and I'll go, oh yeah, that's right. You don't say this in regular life anymore. So um, so it's not very provocative, really, for my colleagues. It is super provocative, obviously, for white readers, and I always get that. And I got more about the average amount of sort of hate mail um, for this piece that I normally get. Um, <laughs> the average amount. Yeah, the what's, average. What's the probably, average amount? How much, I, mean, you get. I mean, I think average, if I, I'll get something like 20, 24 emails, something like that. To your, to your work address? or to like, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, they definitely email me at work. That's mm-hmm. their favorite. Oh, yeah, because they can find you. Your, number, your email address is public, right? I think it's on the website. Right. Find it, yeah. yeah, nothing you can do, man. It's mm-hmm. there. Um, <laughs> and I'm at a public school, too, so absolutely nothing you can do. So, yeah, mm-hmm. they love that. So it was about typical, but and I scan, I don't read comments at all, Gene, yeah. one of my favorite mm-hmm. topics lately, right? <laughs> um, but I do sometimes get the feedback loops from things like Facebook and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And it is interesting to see black men resist. They, again, I really do think this is about an absence of a counter narrative. They, I think, can feel just as sort of smothered by the good black man trademark thing as anyone, but there's no other narrative. Mm-hmm. And so they chafe a little bit. They're like, damn, what am I supposed to do then? Right? I get a lot of that. Like, what am I supposed to do? Like, you know, they really, it really is being trapped between a rock and a hard place. And I'm really empathetic about that because the narrative of being a good person, the only one we sort of give black men is that one. Right. So when you say a counter narrative, yeah. what, what do you mean? And what does that look like? Oh, man. I think so. A counter narrative, I mean, they're, they're hard to pull off, right? I mean, like lots of stuff has to sort of line up. I, I don't even know. I think at this point, I almost think it's sort of mystical, but you, you sort of need like a thing coming out of pop culture at the same time that it's sort of coming out of, you know, research and scholarship at the same time as sort of people are ready to hear it. But I think it would be this narrative that you could be a complicated human being, be a black man and those things not be at odds with each other. Hmm. Um, and that looks like what the kind of narratives we have for all kinds of other people who are allowed to succeed and fail without it being about, you know. Pathology. Or, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Without printing up the, you know, the the black velvet paintings. Y'all see the pictures all over <laughs> all the time. You know, I mean, hey. where he's like drizzling juice on his yes. good woman's shoulder, <laughs> holding the world on his shoulders, oh, on his head. You know? That's a lot. Oh, that's yeah. So, do we yeah. have some image, some language, some narrative? Um, because we all like that. I mean, I think human beings' stories are how we make sense of the world. And if people don't have a story about themselves, they'll pick up the one that's there, even if the one that's there is suffocating. So I one thing that I noticed, I went to a black school. Um, what I noticed when I was in college was a lot of guys wanted to be either Malcolm X or MLK. Yeah. So if they were from the South, they would like affect his like mannerisms or be very preacherly. And then once Barack Obama got elected, mm-hmm. then that was like the new yeah. good black man to be. Um, and 
completely like takes away the fact that like both of those people are complex people and like not they're not perfect the way that we like to lift them up to be yeah. so i'm curious like what that new narrative might be like or who that what that new iteration of like yeah. i feel like cliff huxtable was also like a good black man and now like now you just trying to yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but i feel like it's not, I honestly feel like, so Cliff Huxable might have been a good black man, but I think definitely Bill Cosby himself, the actual Bill Cosby, definitely cast himself in that. Mm-hmm. Like, that was definitely a oh, thing. Absolutely. He had the b- good black man, capital G, capital yeah, B, capital yeah. M, trademark sign. You know what I mean? That was the thing he, yeah. like, you know, strutted into the room and, like, you know, mm-hmm. let me tell you about yourself, patriarch, telling you just about your question. Like, I mean, you know, just making space for other kinds of black maleness. A long time ago, this cat that I knew uh, told me that he hated the idea of the good black man because, you know, he was gay, right? And he was like, mm-hmm. he, like, necessarily, if it was about sort of taking care of yeah. your wife and your kids yeah, and being a proper... wife and your cute exactly. kid, right? That's not his he couldn't, he right? And so as a dude who was not, you know, marriageable to women, at least, you know, he couldn't be seen as the dude doing, being upstanding, right? It could never include him, right? Like, so off top, the idea of the good black man was suspect him. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I'm trying to think of like, uh, what is a good black gay man or a good black trans man? Or I don't. Uh, it doesn't need. I don't. Uh, the, I think the good black. The, that's the problem, though, right? That's not even the. I was just about to say the fact that we don't have a a good white man trademark should tell us what role that um, that placeholder is playing in sort mm-hmm. of narrative. That is, it is specific to about. Uh, the dominant narrative about black men. That is to say that I don't think having a better good black man trademark um, character would be an improvement. I right. think that <laughs> it not have one. Right. <laughs> you not just man. Think of one. Right. 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 Um, but now having said that, I think the reason why people latch on to it, um, something like, I think about something like the story of a Martin or a story of a Malcolm, the story of a Barack, is that it's exactly that. It's yeah. a story. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's not about the people. And that's what I meant about a, a counter narrative. I think in lieu of having, like I told you, I think a lot of stars have to align for you to get a narrative that truly upends the dominant one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in lieu of that, you just take a different story. And all of those people sold a very specific story. And so it made it easy to sort of adopt, right? I think, I don't think you have a Barack Obama being adopted as a way of being, for instance, if his story hadn't been one about him and Michelle. Mm-hmm. And the girls mm-hmm. the, right? So it's not him, it's the story. Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, that, that's how mythology works, right? I do definitely think, I think the, I think the hope is for, it's really interesting to me. So I go to see uh, Talib Kweli, uh, was in town last week. Mm-hmm. I know, I go see him, even though he cussed me out on Twitter once. <laughs> Talib Kweli, that's his, like, that's what he does on Twitter. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, he He's cussed me out. always yelling at people on Twitter. I was like, fam, I'm the wrong one. Cause see, I think sometimes people see like your title and they think you don't engage that way. Right, right, right. Mm. You got it twisted. <laughs> I don't cuss you out, Talib. But, that's what my point. Somebody invited me, so I go. But it was interesting to see. He does this whole, you know, section in the middle about his sort of evolution on sexuality as a black man. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, now that's interesting. And the language he was even using, he it was pretty much adopting the narrative and the language from the black trans community and what mm. it, and gave homage to that. I'll do credit to him, even though he tried to cuss me out one time. I'll do credit <laughs> to him for doing that. Because he gave them props and he said this is where the narrative was coming from and what a struggle it had been for him moving on that. 
but how much more um, grounded in himself he felt having done so. Mm -hmm. And I thought, when I see that, I think it's the hope. I think the, the strange thing that the salvation probably of a better masculinity narrative will be one that completely upends just the idea of masculinity. The fact that that's where it's coming from is not probably not a surprise, but it was interesting to see him do that. So, all right, so there's a story in Brooklyn right now about this fight over these two schools, right? I don't know if you saw oh, that. Oh, yeah. I peeked a little that today. Yeah, but catch me up. Okay, so there's two schools. Um, there's PS8 um, uh, and then PS uh, PS3 or 7, right. PS8 is mostly white. PS8 is overcrowded, like way overcrowded. PS307 is mostly black. And PS307 actually has space to spare. And so the city's proposing, all right, well, this school over here near the projects, uh, has a lot of space it's, it's like you know it's a bunch of empty spaces like it has a bunch more capacity let's add them together now it's a fight because the people in the affluent school like absolutely not i mean we've been talking about schools a lot lately on the podcast but um it reminded me of actually literally the first couple graphs in your in your essay this is what you wrote every conversation about resources in the united states is also about race and racism like parents choosing a neighborhood for its quote good schools americans talk about prison and crime as a means of discussing race and racism in polite company one needn't hate Hispanics to choose a school system with no Hispanics. Freedom from being stopped and frisked, from predatory criminal justice fines, from cells, is arguably the resource from which every other resource flows. Education, marriage, income, wealth, happiness, actualization. And I was thinking about that because like, it seems to hit directly onto this story here, right? Like, I mean, and, and so many other stories that we keep, we've been talking about yeah. the last couple of weeks. The fact that there's a lot of uh, really good conversation happening right now around schools and resources and race, and that's why it was sort of at the forefront of my mind. I just finished reading... Um, and I'm teaching Jimmy Lewis's book, Inequality the Promised Land, and I've got um, Amanda Lewis's and John Diamond's Despite the Best Intentions yeah, on my desk that I'm yeah. working on. Yeah. Um, and their whole premise is this, right? That uh, basically white people with means treat the state like a private resource. If you don't have, if you're white and you're middle class or you don't have the means to actually buy yourself out of diversity or integration or whatever I catch a phrase uh, is uh, today, um, then what you do is you use your social capital to co-op the public, the state, to, to do what you can't afford to purchase. So can you like, give me an example? Yeah, so you can't afford to send your kids to the private school. Mm -hmm. So you turn the public school into your private school. You make magnet schools, right? They that's have, right. Yeah, they have that's right. emission standards. Yeah, that's right, because the way, the, the, the benefit to whiteness has always been to be able to control the geography of whiteness, not just for yourself, but most importantly for your kids. Look, mm -hmm. everybody's a progressive until it comes to their children. Right. Of course. Everybody. Everybody likes freedom in, uh, you know, in the abstract. Everybody likes justice in the abstract. But when it comes down to, are you willing to send your kids to a school that in any way compromises what you sort of want to pass down to them? Then you're talking about a very different conversation, which is why progressivism and all that sort of rolls really over my head most of the time. I'm like, yeah, okay, you know, um, I, you know, I have colleagues, and I mean, this is not a slam at all. I get it; it's a complicated decision. But I got colleagues who study things like racism in school and send their kids to a private all-white school. Right. <laughs> right. Everybody's politics are different when it comes to their kids. 
the you know that's only controversial um it's only a controversial comment to people who don't think of it in that terms they've got this idea that they can hold out for there being equality for all but just a little bit more equality for me um and so yeah that's just a classic case of them treating especially in a place like new york where not only re real estate is at a premium but where the competition for private schools is so extremely stiff mm -hmm. Right. So in some place like, you know, um, sort of middle America where you can be in the, in the upper middle class by working based on your income in New York to be rich, you have to have inherited your wealth pretty much. Right. Right. Um, and that puts white people at a disadvantage um, in that geography in ways that they wouldn't be in other places. So they can't buy themselves into that system. And so they co-opt the public school system. One of my favorite stories and my favorite, of course, I mean, horrible. <laughs> um, from a couple of years ago, it was also in New York, right? There were, you know, wealthy white parents who were policing. They would sit out in the carpool mm -hmm. and write down the license plates numbers of the cars who were dropping the kids off at school. Wait, what? And then they would pay a private investigator to run them to make sure that these were people who lived in the district. Trust me. Wow. Oh, yeah, this is one of my favorites. Yeah. Where was this? Where, did, I wonder if this uh, Yeah, this is in New York. This is in New York Public. I'll send it to you. Hiring private detectives to track down, actually saved it with the intention to maybe write something about it one of these days because there was a rash of sort of these stories, but that one was just sort of the most extreme. Oh, right? my gosh. That's what that is, and that's what you do. And the fact that we constructed as middle-class people as doing what's best for you. Right. That's right? the conversation. That's the language we use. Right? Mm -hmm. And that excuses, apparently, all of the other stuff about the allocation of resources. One of my favorite quotes uh, from a couple of economists, which is horrible of me, but they say, you know, yeah, you can have equality. It's a horrible you of you because you're a, a sociologist? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, like, I'm honor-bound. It's like, you know, it's my squad. I, I'm honor-bound. I hate the economists. Um, but they were like, yeah, you know, Blount Duncan, uh, a couple of economists go, you can have schools create equality. We actually know how to do that. But to do that, you'd have to destroy the family unit. Huh. <laughs> what we try to do is balance the two against each other. Right. Right. Same the, conversation about wealth as opposed to income. We know how to get people more income, redistribute wealth. But these are not yeah, <laughs> these are complicated only in the implementation, not in concept. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean yeah, this is the reality. But I mean it's not hopeless. Absolutely places have managed to do that. But what, you who has managed to do it? Things that we don't like. Well, like in the um, until very, very recently in the Canadian school system, your kids went to the school in their district, period. And they tend to have lower late, lower levels of um, racialized race, um, uh, neighborhood segregation. So as that was Monday's question, right? Yeah. And tend to have more. Yeah. And tend to have less um, in school tracking, which we tend to think of as the outcome of having uh, racial integration in schools in the U.S. Mm -hmm. See a lot less of it there. You why do they? Why aren't there? Why aren't there neighborhoods uh, segregated? Is it just Parents a different? Oh, yeah. Real estate options uh, have been different the way they purchase homes there. They don't have the history of redlining. Right, 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 right. Mm. I mean, we're still dealing with all of that. No, so I remember, you know, sort of being professionalized into this stuff earlier on in my in my uh, academic um, journey, talking with my mentor, Sandy Darity is an economist. Sandy um, Darity. Yeah, yeah. He is great on Twitter. If y'all, if you're listening to this, you should follow Sandy Darity on Twitter. He is the best. He is hilarious. And he's my example one-on-one. -on -one. Whenever I'm trying to teach academics how to use social media, and they're like, oh, it's young people stuff. Oh, I'll be like, see, nah. Yeah. Sandy took the Twitter like a duck the water. Yeah, he, he is great on Twitter. And it's like, you know, periodically I go on my, like, acting white is uh, that whole mythology is some bullshit, yeah. blah, blah, blah. I always go to Sandy Darity's. His timeline, and he's somewhere in the last couple of days, he's been smacking somebody down for being like, Well, what about acting white? 
Yeah. He loves it. He lives for that. Y'all just don't know. I've been in a room with him when he's tweeting. That's what's up. <laughs> but I remember saying to him, like, like even maybe more so than I am. I mean, he truly is. And I, I say it as a joke to him. He's really smart for a man. And <laughs> how I mean that he is. He's, he's truly brilliant. And I remember saying to him one time, like, how do you not like just collapse under the weight of this, right? Like, how do you just, I mean, he's been for uh, my whole life been doing work trying to move the U.S. towards reparations, which seems like a ridiculously hopeless situation. Mm -hmm. And he's like, you know, he's, and I'll never forget, he turned to me and he was like, you know what, Tracy? They said the same thing about ending slavery. He said, mm -hmm. it's ridiculous until it's not. And so you just keep showing up. You want your work to be there at the moment when people finally get to the right point in time. And... You want you want to be there when it gets there. That's it. You want to do the stuff that helps those people when finally the sort of tide is turning. So that's my hope. Like, I'm not sure I get to live to see it, but this is a long story, right? We got a long story to write. And so, so yes, I think there's hope. There has to be. There has right. to be. This is, this is an interesting contrast to the conversation. Remember a couple of episodes ago, we talked to Nicole Hannah-Jones. Um, mm -hmm. And she was saying how, like, you know, pessimism, pessimism is a practical, pragmatic um, yeah. stance to take. You know what I mean? Like, she, you know, obviously she writes about big systemic issues, right, around race. And so mm -hmm. she was basically like, our history on race is, you know, <laughs> there's not a lot there to lend itself to a whole lot of optimism, you know? Right. In no. hope. You know what I mean? Yeah. In the short term... I think a pessimism and a pragmatism is, it can save your mental health. But I think there is a type of, I think you can both be a long-term, long, hopeful in the long-term and pragmatic in the short-term. Okay. So what I, what I mean by that is, mm -hmm. right, that doesn't, right, my, my moods don't go up and down with learning about some new horrible form of systemic racism, mm -hmm. right? I, I take that for granted. Um, to quote the Hulk, you know, how does he deal with being angry? I'm always angry. <laughs> I'm, I'm always immersed in it. I'm not, so I'm good. But in the long term, my peasant underneath my pessimism is that I won't necessarily see it. That's the part where I think we get caught up, right? Right. But I do believe in sort of a long term. Now, it may be a, a very different looking kind of nation state. We might be looking at a very different mm -hmm. kind of country and a different culture for it to happen. But we've done yeah. that before. Really not creative enough to imagine it. Like I, you know, I know there are people, um, you know, artists and you know the the Afrofuturist sort of movement of artists, especially I'm thinking about who are always who are really big on that on trying to imagine that alternative world. Mm -hmm. I'm not good at that, and I accept my limitations. <laughs> it will be fundamentally different, but that doesn't mean the end of all we know, right? Like it's sure. just different. It's different. different. That happens. All right, y'all, that's it for this week. But before we get out of here, I want to clarify something really quickly. That story that Tracy shouted out about New York City parents who were using private investigators to look up the driver's licenses of people they suspected were sending their kids to schools who did not belong in those neighborhoods. That story was actually not in New York City. It was in Greenwich, Connecticut, a very rich suburb outside of New York City. We did some fact-checking really quickly, and we found some other stories that were a little bit older from the early aughts of parents in New Jersey doing the same thing. But the story Tracy was referring to was in the New York Times, September 11, 2012. It's called Schools Look to weed out non-residents if you want to check that out you can holler at tressy on twitter at tressy mc phd that's t-r-e-s-s-i-e m-c phd you can holler at taryn at dope reads that's d-o-p-e-r-e-a-d-s you can holler at me at gd215 that's g-e-e-d-e-e 215 our podcast producers are channing kennedy and john ketchum and you can sign up for our weekly newsletter at postbougie.com all right y'all be easy